We are live with Growing With My Fellow Growers. This is at Jack Greenstock filling in for Shane of the Cheap Home Grow podcast. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to the show. I'm going to wait until the YouTube live stream comes up, and then I'll go ahead and start introducing my fellow panel members. And first one will be Dr. MJ this week. Hey, hey, everybody. Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I am excited about this show and I remind everybody to sign up for the Plant Training Grow Challenge, which is starting like soon. So get in that. Good stuff. Short and sweet. Next up, we have our resident IPM specialist and research master, uh, Matthew Gates. Okay, well, when you, when you say that, and then people are going to have expectations, Jack. I'm setting the bar high. <laughs> well, actually, I like As that. high as I am right now, I'll say. Well, that's a pretty high bar. It's, a, it's an <laughs> even higher bar. Spartan's bar is the one that we're uh, using here as a metric. But um, yeah, IPM specialist Matthew Gates, if you're interested in how to deal with pests and pathogens and cannabis and a bunch of other plants, for that matter, um, check out either my Instagram, at SyncAngel, my Twitter feed, which I know, Jack, you've been seeing some of my tweets lately, um, on my personal anyways, and also on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol. Twitter is Zenthanol and Twitter is Sync Angel as well. I have been uh, checking out the tweets. I, it's funny sometimes when I refresh my feed and it says like 30 seconds ago and I like hit that like button. And I'm like, oh, he probably thinks I'm stalking him or something. But I just happened to like open up my feed at that moment. But uh, I do appreciate the content wherever you share it. And I, I try to stay up on all things IPM and research related. I wouldn't want to set it to the Spartan Grown high standard bar because that might be at the world record high. So speaking of Spartan Grown, go ahead, introduce yourself. What's up, guys? I don't know about all that, but uh, yeah, I was actually, I'm, I'm happy speaking about being high. I, I was really high most of the day yesterday because I got to go to a cannabis event and hang out with a bunch of people. I met new people, which is always awesome. And uh, so you guys all know who you are. I don't want to shout out a million names here, but uh, it was an awesome time hanging with you guys. And uh, so I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram. Shout out to Herbal Forest. That's uh, for those northern people in Michigan. I, I know that that's one of the ones closer to my boy, uh, Eagle Gardens. He said it's like... Uh, Eagle was there. He was one of the guys. Yeah, no, I saw some <laughs> pictures. So I'm, I'm happy that Michigan community is able to come together. And uh, hopefully everybody's uh, staying happy and healthy and uh, having a good time at the events. And uh, I'm glad that you guys were able to pull something together and have a good time. It was a really um, interesting way that they did it because it was a campground and they, um, so when you pulled into the event, you just like follow the road and each, it was sectioned off by campground sections. So you like reserved a spot. So like, it's like automatically set up for social distancing because it's already like sectioned off already. You just follow the numbers to your number and then you got to set up right there. So that was pretty cool. Good stuff. It sounds like it was a good time. I just want to remind the chat, uh, all the good people that are here already, if you haven't already to switch over to the live chat, make sure you'll be able to see all those messages, unless you want to live that filtered life where any swear word or random message that the YouTube algorithm decides to filter out, you won't get to see. So if you want to be in there with the rest of us, seeing all the messages, make sure you check out that live chat. But that said, next up, uh, Noah the Grower. How's it going, everybody? Uh, I've had a big forum project going here at my house the last couple of weeks, so I missed the show, but uh, I'm uh, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, Noah the Grow with two E's from Instagram. I've been uh, growing medical marijuana for quite a while now. If you got any questions or want to check out my stuff, come check it out. I'm happy to be here. We're always happy to have you, and thanks again for showing up. 
I think the last member who's here, I think we might have lost Aaron the grower, so hopefully he is able to jump back in. But the last person I see on the list right now who's with us is Kyle. You skipped Brendan. <laughs> oh, yeah, damn. I was talking to him pre-show and got myself all mixed up. Uh, yeah, uh, my name is Kyle Breeder. I'm a cannabis breeder and seed maker. If anybody's looking for uh, some pretty good cannabis genetics, I basically spe- specialize in feminized. You can go to pbreeding.com. Uh, or you can look at any of my social media accounts if you're trying to see what I'm doing at Predicated Breeding, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Social Club. And I'm excited to see what we have today. And uh, thanks for hosting, Jack. We, I still appreciate that, man. Happy to be here and fill in for Shane. I know he's uh, enjoying a little bit of time away from the you know, just content creation scene. It's a, a grind, and a lot of work was put in in the time that he was able to put out a ton of content. So I hope people enjoy all the uh, back catalog of shows that he's been able to do and the shows that continue to come out despite his uh, absence. Uh, last panel member, I want to give an opportunity to, since I skipped him, one, uh, if you all don't know, in, in Zoom, when somebody leaves, it sort of reorients the Brady Bunch view. So, like, I was looking, kind of going a little loop, and then when Aaron the Grower dropped out, Brandon relocated, so I totally forgot to uh, introduce him. But go ahead, Brandon, introduce yourself. What's going on, everybody? Uh, if you guys don't already know me, um, I'm Brandon Rust. I am the... Uh, owner of Bokashi Earthworks, a natural micro fertilizer company. And I am the cultivation director over at Majestic Craft Cannabis out here in Oklahoma. Uh, you can find my social media feed at rust.brandon on IG. And there's links in my bio to both my company and uh, the company page. Um, and I just try to focus on community and education um, as much as possible and growing good quality organic weed good stuff we're always happy to have you as well and lastly i mentioned earlier i'm at jack greenstock it might have been before the live went on so uh, you can find me on instagram as well as twitter on uh, jack underscore greenstock and cannabis so check it all out i don't really have any uh pre-prepared topics at all for this week so i guess i could start it off by telling y'all what i'm about to be smoking on which is a little bit of uh strawberry cheesecake from the humboldt seed company which is a cross of purple panty dropper and the forum cut Girl Scout cookie. And with that said, uh, maybe I'll pass it over to Brandon and ask what you're smoking because I see you've got a nice little bong loaded up. Oh, yeah. That's my uh, custom-made piece right there. Love this thing. Super dope. Got the ash catcher to keep my water clean. Um, but, yeah, check this out. I actually, uh, after work today, I stopped by uh, another really small grow that's kind of near my facility, and it's somebody that's been following my Instagram um, and he has a, uh, a license out here in Oklahoma as well. And he's doing living soil and he's using the recipe uh, that I always share with the big roots. And I went and checked. He invited me to come to this place or whatever. And he uh, hooked me up with some weed. And I don't know if you're going to be able to see it very well. Um, but it's, uh, I forget the name of this one. Redbone, I think by Ethos Colin. Um, and then I had some straw lemonade. I'm stroking, smoking on the straw lemonade. Um, but uh, they turned out really good. And I was really happy to see that, uh, that he got such a good quality. Um, so that's what I'm smoking on right now. Taking a little break from the, uh, the Gorilla Glue and the Death Breath that I've been puffing on. Good stuff, good stuff. Uh... I always like to hear what everybody's smoking on. Uh, easy way to start off the show while we wait for the uh, chat to roll in and maybe ask some questions if they've got them. If you've got people in the chat or if you're in the chat and you've got a question for somebody on the panel, you can tag them 
by whatever YouTube name you see them commenting as, or you can tag me um, at Cheap Home Grow because I've got that on my computer or at Jack Greenstock because I got that on my phone and it'll light it up so I can uh, bring up a question on the show if you want to have the panel talk about it. Next up, Spartan Ground, what are you smoking on? Oh, dude, I've got so many selection now because everybody passed me stuff. But uh, I'm trimming on some Blueberry Quintessa, which is that uh, one-to-one CBD THC uh, Quintessa is. That's one of the parents. The other parent was just the uh, Blueberry Sativa. So it's pro- I haven't had it tested, but, I mean, just with those odds, I mean, you're going to get different different combinations. But, I mean, I'm assuming this one has a little bit of CBD in it. My mom really likes it for uh, her arthritis pain. She, she gets a lot of relief from it. So I'll probably be keeping it around for a while. It was funny because of that event was up near her. So I ended up staying with her today or yesterday, last night. And I brought her up. I, I trimmed up like, you know, I don't know, a half ounce or something and brought that up straight to her because she said she was out of that one specifically. I brought her a bunch of other stuff, but I try to keep her in stock of that stuff because that's like, it works really good for her arthritis on her wrists. Hey, Spartan. Yeah. Uh, do you know if Sequence uh, got those Lamarilla seeds wet that I sent him? I don't know if he got them wet, but I know he's got them. He uh, we were ta- he uh, he rode up there with me, so we we're talking about that. So I'm not sure if he's uh, got them wet yet or not because uh, he's got a full greenhouse right now. <laughs> so I think he wants to wait so he has time to really grow it. You know what I mean? But I don't know. I honestly don't know when he's when he's got if he's got them popped yet or not. Pro tip for anybody out there: if you've got a rolling tray. Uh, Make sure it's not magnetic if you go to set it down on your computer because I just did that on my laptop and thankfully nothing got fucked up and I'm still here. But that sort of surprised me a little bit because when I was a little kid, put a magnet on a TV one time and it fucked up the color forever. So I'm always a little bit skeptical with magnets around technology. But that being said, uh, a lot of technology is um, like sort of hardened for that kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, if it's big enough magnet, that can be a big problem. Is Aaron back in yet? He hasn't tried to join. If he does, I'd be more than happy to uh, approve if I see it. I'm looking over at the participant thing on the Zoom. So if he does jump back in, I will add him. Uh, are you indulging with us tonight, Matthew? What are you smoking on? The uh, Dozy Dozy helped me get. It's good stuff. I'm a big fan. Uh, I think it's kind of what I would describe as kind of gassy or fuel. Um, it's a pretty popular cut out here on the West Coast, and everybody grows it a little different. Speaking of Aaron, the grower, his ears must have been burning. Hopefully we can get him in here. Uh, Aaron, the grower, will be joining us here in just a second because I just approved him to the Zoom. So, Aaron, uh, if you can hear us and if we can see you, then you can go ahead and take a second to introduce yourself. We're just kind of going around the panel and saying what we're all smoking on. I literally, my audio just started. Are you, are you talking, did, are you referencing me to tell you? Yeah, what I was just saying we're, right. we're talking about what we're smoking okay, on sorry. and introduce yourself. Uh, okay, I'm Aaron, the grower. Um, uh, ATG Acres on Instagram. Um, this evening, I uh, I'm dabbing on some of these rosin diamonds and terps um, that my buddy High Noon made. Um, really nice stuff, and a great hash maker. That guy. Um, Happy to be here and excited for our talk. And and uh, I hope that we get to talk about this, uh, the electrical conductivity of, uh, of Brandon's fluid, if you guys haven't already talked about it. We haven't gotten into that quite yet, but we will after uh, we go through the rest of the panel. Can where, where Because we do have new listeners, believe it or not, every single show we do get some new listeners. So make sure to go through and uh, 
give us some of your social medias. Where can we find you? Aaron. I'm at uh, ATG Acres on Instagram. That is it. Solo, the only social media I use. I exnate Facebook so long ago, and I'm so glad I did. What's that hat you're wearing, dude? I like that hat. I can't read the the label on it though. Dude, this is uh, this is actually from my hometown, Jupiter, Florida. This is a surf shop, skate shop that I used to get all my gear from. I had uh, I recently reconnected with um, with my stepbrother, uh, who. We weren't connected for, for a good 10 years, but we were stepbrothers for 10 years before that. So, uh, and he brought me this hat from Florida. So it was really, I had him out to trim and, uh, you know, he brought me this hat and it was really cool. So <laughs> cool. the, the home state. I, like I like the camo. Thanks dude. Yeah. I, I, I dig the style too. The dark camo and stuff. Yeah. I noticed you're a hat rocker too. You, you, you probably yeah, got a closet. Time. Oh, it, it's actually a wall. You got the Mittenfanica yeah. one on right now. Brandon has a pretty uh, cool hat we were talking about before the show. Is it from Loving in Her Eyes, the grower, or is it a Grateful Dead reference hat? Uh, no, it's from it's from the uh, the account on IG. It's from the girl. Shout she out to her. She grows some dead. weed. Yeah. Yeah. She has very beautiful pictures of some very beautiful weed. I uh, I actually sent her off some uh, some Bokashi. Speaking of beautiful weed, Noah the grower, you grow some very beautiful weed yourself. What are you smoking on over there tonight? Yeah, I got some uh, Dosey Dose 55 that I just pulled down, a little fruit punch, and I'm um, waiting here another 10 days or so for this overflow to come down. But yeah, I'm excited about this Dosey Dose. It seems like that's a popular cut with a lot of people right now. Yeah, what I have currently, um, which uh, Jack helped me acquire, is pretty nice. And I know that. Uh, this is going to sound a little bit funny, but like I can tell, I can actually recognize as this particular um, one that I got because it's got a very distinctive uh, aroma and taste that I'm picking up on when I'm switching between different ones. So, but of course, you know how it is, like the way that somebody grows it, you know, who knows sometimes even if you're actually getting what you're expecting and that sort of a thing. It's always on the top of my mind when I'm like, oh, this is XYZ cultivar or whatever. Totally, because in that case, the guy that I uh, was able to acquire it from, he got it from his buddy. They both grow the same cut in a different room, and it totally comes out way different, like way, way, way different. And uh, I think they're both great. They're both individually awesome, but it's uh, definitely you can tell the distinct grow room between the two guys. And they have a lot of shared things, so you would think they would come out a lot more close, but I think it's uh, cultural practices really come into play a lot with that. That being said, Dr. MJ, I know you've got a very distinct style and uh, you've got some practices like you like to stick to with your growing techniques. Uh, what are you smoking on over there tonight? I was thinking about that when you were coming over to me. I uh, Well, right now, last night, I grind up some, uh, well, what are we calling it now? My uh, green cookies, I guess we decided we had to call it last time, the Girl Scout crack and uh, New England rock candy put together. I'm trying, I don't know, ever since like we had an episode like six months ago or something where we were talking about mixing different strains in the grinder, I've been experimenting lately with that. But those are two of the strongest ones that I've got. So that was sort of last night. I've been so lost in video editing. I haven't even, I mean, I think I vaped half of what was left from last night a few hours ago and then got like lost in video editing again until the show. I should probably vape a bowl here while we're, while we're chatting. Yeah, you would tell me about it. You and me both. I've been, I got a, um, 
a little uh, camera grip for my phone, actually, so that I can kind of use it better on a tripod. And I've been filming some things like an IPM FAQ that's going to come out this week. And I have a video that just came out about some of the equipment I use on site evaluations for IPM. Yeah. And, oh, man. You get lost in it, man. I mean, I've been doing this video for a month now, um, kind of working on it like 10 to 12 hours a day, seven days a week for a month. So um, I'm pretty lost <laughs> right now, but hopefully I think it's going to be done this week, but I definitely feel you, Matt. And I've heard you talk about this before, like, you know, I've been working on this video forever and I'm like, yeah, I can sympathize with that situation now. So those two big IPM videos I made earlier in the year were like hundred, like a hundred plus research citations and like, like literally like probably two weeks full of work, like hours wise. Um, but yeah, I just have to get lost in it. It's yeah. hard to motivate sometimes, a lot of times, honestly. I'm going to keep this video as my goal. I'm going to keep it under an hour, um, but it's pretty in depth and i've had some people preview portions of it they convinced me that it's not sort of long and boring um that's good that's always good <laughs> yeah i've worked on a lot of sort of animation sequences and other things like that within the the film and and doing sort of different things but teaching a lot of physics it's fun i mean i'm doing uh what, four or five different part tests in the video changing things and sort of talking about the the physics of what changes when we do that um, so I, I really enjoyed sort of working on it and putting it all together, but it's gotten to the point where I've got to finish this damn thing and publish it. And like other kinds of projects are stacking up. I got a sweet new light in this week that I got to like do some testing with. What's Doc, this? We got a, a question in the chat for you from, uh, Carlos. They say Dr. MJ's cocoa's feeding plan suggests lowering EC during ripening week in quotes. How do you assess when this should start? So I figured you should address that first. And actually, before you do, real quick, I just want to give Kyle a chance because I think he was the only one who didn't say what he was smoking on. So Kyle, what are you smoking on? And then Doc, you can answer that question as a follow-up. Well, first I'd like to say, before MJ answered, I was kind of hoping he would say rock candy, and he's still there, so that kind of makes me a proud person. But uh, yeah, I just actually went in my room and uh, busted out the chest, and uh, I'm actually smoking on uh, that Land Race Highland tie that I had from uh, a long time ago. That was a 24-week uh, flower period. Uh, you know, as you know, like, obviously I can't, I do better with like a, like a one-to-one -one ratio and I haven't gotten it tested, but it, it's enough. Uh, the high itself is like really calming and I don't know what the cannabinoid profile is, but it's, uh, it's just like a really conscious high, more of like a, like a Gandhi type high. And it's just, it's just a really calming and, uh, but like uplifting and, uh, it's just, a, just a really good smoke overall. I mean, I don't suggest anyone trying it unless they have the patience to wait that long for a plant to flower, but, uh, it's, it's a really good smoke. It sounds like it. And uh, Doc, did you have a response to the question earlier, uh, basically asking, how do you assess when the ripening week begins? For I mean, yeah, this is like, how do you how do you know when to harvest type of a question? Um, you really just want to try to to lower it down before the harvest. Give the plant about a week to have the, the lower EC. Um, it aids in the uptake of, of uh, phosphorus. Um, it's tough to say. I, I would say like, it's almost, I read the plants, right? And you're sort of engaging it based on harvest window. Um, and every plant's a little bit different. And sometimes you kind of miss and sometimes you start a little bit early. Other times you get kind of like behind the curve 
and you're like, oh man, I should have started started ripening week like a week ago, and I should be harvesting now. Um, there's a lot of flexibility in that time though too, I really think. So it, it's you want to try to give it for about a week and before the flush, and it really depends on how the plant is is maturing and sort of when you're going to harvest it and all of those various indicators that might tip you off that the harvest time is coming. Thank you very much for the response. I think uh, it is sort of one of those things where it actually preference comes into it. So like certain people are going to want to flush at different times. And I will say like for a lot of people that are worried about it, it's not like they're going to entirely screw things up if they try it a little earlier, a little late, like it might be a little bit racier, a little more sedating. But I think if you take care of the plant for most of your grow, if you transition relatively around the right time, and I think you'll figure out roughly when that is for you that it's it's a a lot more forgiving than you might think so. i agree there's two let me let me say something else about this there's two transitions if you're following my schedule or if you really you're following sort of a hydroponic feed schedule there's two transitions that are important to nail and if you don't nail them right on then the plant will react to that and that's the beginning and the end of early bloom the the stretch phase basically um, so moving off of late veg newts, either through a transition blend or directly into what would be the stretch blend, often called early bed or early bloom. Um, moving on to that and then moving off of it into mid bloom. By the time you're in the mid bloom mixes, stuff doesn't really change much between mid bloom blends and late bloom blends. And it's basically, you can sort of just plot that out as gradual buildup. Um, of the P and the K through the, the, as the plant sort of matures. And then you have this lowering of the electrical conductivity that occurs during the ripening week. You know, it, it's really none of those transitions between mid bloom and late bloom and, and then on to ripen are critical to nail. And if you end up on one a little bit longer or transition a little bit earlier, it, it's really no big deal at all at that point. And you can stay, if you end up going on to the ripen blend too early, you can end up staying there for a couple of weeks. That doesn't matter either. Um, but yeah, Jack, it totally depends on how you're planning on flushing the plants too and how many sort of the timing of all of that, right? I think so for sure. And I just had another follow-up question from Mike Angel in the chat. They asked, has anyone tried Regen Terra, an aloe-based supplement? I personally have not. Uh, I think aloe is great for a number of reasons though. If you can get fresh aloe, I think fresh aloe is even better. But um, I've seen aloe powders and gels have some success, but I, I think fresher the better, in my opinion. But has anyone on the panel tried Regen Terra? Uh, I've never used that brand. I'm not sure if it's aloe vera extract powder. I have used aloe vera extract powder. It's great for just doing a soil drench. It adds a lot of different amino acids. It adds a lot of enzymes, uh, psilocybic acid. Um, I used to use, when I had a much smaller grow, I used to use aloe vera for my clone gel, again, because it has that salicylic acid that helps the uh, rooting, has those rooting um, hormones, and, uh, and it just helps assist the plant in the rooting process, but uh, I just don't know specifically what the company is or exactly what the product is, but typically it's, what I see is uh, aloe vera extract powders. Um, but again, I like using fresh aloe vera and I would just take whole plant, like I take a, you know, a steak of aloe like that, 
put it like a gallon of water in the blender, blend that up, and then add that to the resi and just water. You couldn't really overdo it. Although I'll add, it is possible to, to, you can't overdo it in a single setting, but you can overdo it in terms of like how often you do it because plants have like a salicylic acid pathway and in terms of feeding it directly to the roots, you know, it's, it's like injecting it into their veins almost. You can picture it like that. Like you're just like locking into a exists and activating it and then injecting it. And, um, and <clears throat> so it's really interesting. So, you know, there's the study I read about salicylic acid was saying that in, in this obviously non-cannabis study saying that increasing levels of salicylic acid, like many things, has a tipping point to where when you get to a certain point, um, they, it starts to cause dwarfing um, and other undesirable traits. And maybe some of these things would be desirable if you're, if you're looking for, you know, some short bushy plants. Nonetheless, it's important to, uh, to talk about that aloe, you know, it's a great addition, but, you know, once or twice a cycle, should be plenty yeah it's not like one of those things that you use like every time you're feeding your plants <clears throat> most of these things aren't especially when you do organics a lot of these things are like you inoculate once or yep. like twice throughout the grow you know um i like brandon have seen it used with clones like literally to dunk a clone into a, a slab of aloe and then just put that into your rooting medium or they cut it up and then they blend it and they water that into even seedlings like but just like you said like one time early in, in the clone's life or seedlings life and i think um some people like to overdo things and just feel like they're doing something every single time especially if it's like a water only soil and uh, yeah it's like with with organics don't trip man just like if you have time that week fuck yeah make a brew man if you got if you don't all right then water but you know that's the thing with organics is you are you're dropping life and every time you you drop life in there you're it's bonus but you're not taking anything away from the plant by not doing something. I googled that product that Regen Terra and I don't want to make this into like an ad for them or anything but they claim a few different benefits for aloe like B vitamins, uh, critical for plant growth, lignans, increased nutrient and water bioavailability. bioavailability polysaccharides which assist in mineral chelation and plant nutrient uptake so those are just a few of the claims at least that they're making uh, which would lead to increased plant growth root length and yield and increased resistance to pest and disease but again like whenever you start hearing these claims matthew in the past has said um, you should usually ask for data to back it up and i do, this I do know their website that. doesn't have them but they quote like dr elaine ingham who says uh, she's, they say she's world around renowned microbiologist and founder of the Soil Food Web Institute, SFI, has identified aloe as one of the most potent biological stimulants she has ever worked with, Farmers Weekly. So I think it's definitely beneficial if used properly in gardening, for sure. Oh, oh, lignin, by the way, if you're, if you're cutting aloe at home, um, the, so what you want to do is the inside gel is great. It's like, it'll kind of like work with your water it's not necessarily water soluble although some of it is but it like kind of mixes well in a homogenous kind of way um but then the the skin has the lignin so you're going to want to blend that and use that as a top dress or blend the whole thing and mix it into some sort of top dress but yeah, uh, really, throw that in your worm bin yeah hell yeah put everything in your 
you know, you could you could put that sentence at the end of everything, man. So with Allo, I maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I'm kind of a simple guy, and so when Allo, what I do is I'll take a, what do they call it, fronds, whatever the a, a leaf of the Allo, and I'll fillet it like a fish, kind of just take and you can peel the skin right off of that inside, and I I'm, I call them fillets, leave it with the fillet. And I chop it just like a fillet and I layer those fillets on top of my soil. And when, um, then I'll just water it through like it's a top dress. And that's how I deal with it. I don't cheap and easy, baby. Any of that stuff. Yeah. Around here, you can get those giant, giant aloe leaves or even like a live plant at a lot of the stores locally. And I'm sure most places have uh, similar, hopefully access to resources like those. And I think that they show benefit in the garden um, as most people would have uh, probably not be using it if it didn't have some sort of benefit, right? But that's not always the case. <laughs> but it, it definitely seems to have lots of benefits. It's one of those things that has, like, it, it takes up a bunch of micronutrients. And um, similar to, like, kelp, I feel like it's just got a lot of stuff going on that could be potentially beneficial for plant growth. And It's a pretty easy plant to grow, too, man. I mean, you can – I have two. I have two of them. I have one sitting in my the kitchen right next to my uh, living room, too. And then I have one in my grow, in my in my grow tent with them in the mom in the mom room. I just like having it around. It's great for like if you cut yourself or if you have a burn or scrape. Uh, it's just awesome for your skin in general. Like also, I funny, Brandon headed out to go look at his aloe plants. I was about to do the same thing. <laughs> I'm not gonna do it since he's hey, doing it. <laughs> you don't have to do it. We're, he's just showing that we don't just talk about it. We're actually dude. About those it, are right, you know? massive. Go back to that big ass one, Brandon. Hold on. Go back. Go back, dude. Cool. They, they keep they keep duplicating that thing you can pull those at the bottom and just create more and more plants My i need God. to transplant these two but see i transplanted this one and they are it's already grown a big you know another like spear so then you know of course are those different to... different varieties and stuff or is it just one yeah i have three different varieties here so um, I lost the tags, so, but I have just the med regular medicinal aloe. Uh, it doesn't say the scientific name of it though. Oh, it's just regular aloe vera, I guess. I think it's aloe vera. Yeah. And then I'm not sure which aloe these are, but they're different. I have two different ones. I have one that's like leopard spotted or something, you know? Basically just don't overwater it because like, my next oh, yeah. door neighbor, she has like her entire house around all sides has been overgrown by aloe because she just like started off with one little plant and just like kept repotting and repotting. And it grows really, really. If you, she's like, if I just leave it alone, it grows really well. And I think that's the like, best advice for aloe or like succulents in general. If you don't overwater them, they pretty much will just survive. Give them water like very rarely. So aloe, aloe vera gets a russet mite called an aloe aloe gall mite or aloe bud mite aloe bud mite and they're really really pernicious and difficult to deal with so in case you want to practice your russet identification skills if they, they start fireproof to... they're not fireproof are they they're not fireproof <laughs> i got can a you hit them with i got a solution <laughs> got can it. you hit them with phalasis or whatever or cucumbers or all the other predatory mites. Yeah. 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 But um, it, so I remember going to a, I remember going to a training meeting with some people and somebody was presenting about aloe bud mite and they were saying that the for commercial growers of aloe, anyways, um, and aloe vera in particular, they were saying um, 
just dump it. <laughs> just put that plant in the bag, seal it, put it in the dumpster because it's just so difficult to deal with for them. But I don't know. I don't know why they didn't uh, try to use biocontrol agents. Maybe that was just the most expedient it's because of the value it's because of the value of the crop you know it's, yeah, it's the cost effective you know, it's basically free to cannabis. propagate yeah if it was cannabis they could justify that labor but if it's not cannabis flamethrower you know there's little weeders that shoot fire that's that's the most satisfying and then listen for pops if you get pops you know you're you're, you're blasting them yeah Shout even out to... heat, like one of the things that one of the things that uh i like to do sometimes it might <laughs> Uh, well, flies are attracted to flame. Let's just put it that way. And sometimes that happens. And uh, it doesn't take much to, well, you guys, you know, I was talking about that, um, that laser system, the intelligent designs made for mosquitoes, uh, malarial mosquitoes in Africa, and it doesn't take much energy to like, you know, deform a wing on an insect. They're very delicate. So I'd be interested in some, some of that technology becoming more a, a sort of attractive and affordable because that way you can get rid of a bunch of things at once and discriminate between the pests and the non-pests which is crucial that's why we keep you around you uh, are here to bring us back down to earth when we're all on our uh aloe high horse you know we gotta keep talking about lasers i'm talking about star wars lasers taking out insects i'm not sure that's very grounded no it's it's, it's good <laughs> stuff well what you also made me aware of is a lot of insects wings are actually just to help them like float through the air they're not great flyers which i actually didn't know for a long time even though many insects have wings, not all of them are amazing at flying. So like you said, just a very delicate injury could be enough to incapacitate it from moving effectively. So that's a really cool uh, method, I think, that might be explored more in the future as the cost becomes more affordable. Hey, I had something that I wanted to talk about that I thought was really interesting that I just kind of recently observed. Okay, um, so... You know how fungus gnats are pretty much, they're everywhere, you know, and a lot of times people have a lot of trouble with fungus gnats in organic gardening, right? So, uh, somebody told me something, uh, you know, a couple months ago, and it, and it basically, uh, it came up because, and what he told me, he's like, hey, have you ever... He's like, he's like, hey, I stopped using kelp because when I go, every time I go to the beach, every time I see a pile of kelp, there's tons and tons of gnats. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, there is, there usually is a ton of gnats whenever uh, you use kelp or whenever there's kelp. And I recently did a top dress with kelp um, and it was like immediately there was, I saw uh I went from there zero uh, fungus gnats and I, and I was had the same exact uh, biocontrol program and uh, right after I did the kelp I started seeing fungus gnats here and there and it was really interesting and it reminded me of what that guy said and I was and I was thinking about you know the times that I've gone to the beach and the times that I have seen you know, kelp. And it reminded me, yeah, I have seen that exact same thing. And so I'm now curious is if you guys have witnessed the same thing, or if you guys, uh, well, maybe now moving forward, since I've said this, you guys will uh, kind of check this out and see if um, you guys are seeing the same type of thing. And if there's maybe something in kelp that they're attracted to, or that 
you know, that they can that they really like to feed on. I'm very curious. I think mostly I use kelp. I use kelp and I have a problem with fungus gnats, but I also use guano and other things. But yeah, I I have noticed that correlation myself. Fungus like gnats fungus are relatively gnats easy to deal like with. Little gnats are really I know just because I do those alcohol extractions all the time. If I leave alcohol sitting out, it's usually like fruit flies. I don't really see fungus gnats as much, but little flies are like super attracted to alcohol. I don't know. Can I ask you a question, Brandon? Yeah. Um, when you're when your buddy's on the beach and he says he sees kelp with uh, fungus gnats on it, um, are you, is he sure it's fungus gnats and it's not like um, like you know sand fleas? Or I was going to ask Matt that. Like, what are those things that are all over the kelp? No, no, no. I'm talking about, I'm talking about like uh, swarms flying above. They're gnats. I don't know if they're fungus gnats, but they're very similar to, you know, they're very similar. Sure. And, you know, it would I, indicate that, that that kind of species could feed on something like that. But let me just, I mean, my two cents is that I have been using kelp for like six years and I've never dealt with fungus gnats but that's outdoors so i did deal with fungus gnats before kelp indoors but you know so brandon your your point is that the fungus gnats may enjoy the kelp and, and sort of it acts as an attractant or your point is that the fungus gnats are somehow coming with the kelp oh no i think that there may be something in there that they are either attracted to um you know there's or something you know i don't know yeah yeah I mean, okay that's what one I of those things it's one of those things where you know i i'm it's they're they're more of a of a nuisance and if you let them become a problem but you can always just up your bio controls i want to go back a little bit to what spartan grown said about like using a flamethrower because i saw a fun video from potent ponics steve and he had some sort of pest issue and instead of like dealing with it with uh you know, bio controls, like uh, some sort of predatory mite, he just took a torch and just blazed the entire plat top to, top to bottom. And uh, speaking of him, he will be on the show next week. So this is our preliminary announcement. He's let us know that he would like to come on and join us. He's a badass aquaponic grower. He's got a pretty cool facility, I think, in Oklahoma. And he's got some projects in Africa that are going on as well. A uh, pretty respected guy within the community. And I've seen him in the chat a few times uh, over the past few months. So He's definitely like a person within our community. We know and respect him. So we're really looking forward to having him come on next week. So I just wanted to bring that back up when uh, we were talking about flamethrowers that made me remember that uh, it's a pretty cool guest to be announcing for next week. So shout out to him. That reminds me, um, I remember watching this humorous video about, um, so back with when they were changing the army uniforms from buttons to Velcro, there was a lot of people who didn't like the idea of Velcro because it makes too much noise. Like if you're trying to do something sort of covertly and this video, the guy is talking about why the, why, how you can mask and suppress Velcro. And um, what he did was he went to like, go take the Velcro and like move it. And he like yelled like, ah, <laughs> as he like opened the Velcro as if that was the way you would mask the large sound that was coming out from it. So it's sort of the same kind of thing, right? <laughs> Uh, that's one way to get rid of a pest problem, I suppose. Um, it's certainly uh, effective, and sometimes it's necessary to just get rid of a bunch of hosts. 
as funny as it is, I mean, it's 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 still effective. I mean, if you have banker plants that aren't worth a lot to you, things like you know things that you know attract certain pests that you have issues with, let them suck up all the pests and then burn the fuck out of them. There's no escaping that shit. That's super satisfying not. too. Forget, don't forget about that. The fun aspect. It's super satisfying to be able to just torch all those fucks. Revenge. <laughs> Yeah, and just to go Bent back up to frustration there, Spartan. Yeah, that's why I'm always in a good mood because I burn burn the bugs. To to go back to the point about the the flies, I think they're probably what are called so unsurprisingly kelp flies. Um, so they're probably not fungus. Creative now. name, huh? Scientists yeah, are well, so original. Well, biology is well. Hey, you say that, and that name makes sense. But then you've got biologists with like, I mean. <laughs> Bird names are pretty bad. Insect names can be pretty bad. Um, they can, yeah. <laughs> There's a yeah, salt marsh caterpillar that's so named because it doesn't feed on salt marsh plants. But, you know, we still call it that. That's why we have binomial names, I suppose. I wanted to get this out real quick um, for uh, for Kyle. I did get to try some of your rock candy. Uh, Michigan Medicated, a grower here in Michigan, grew it at an event. It wasn't the one I went to today or yesterday, but it was an event before that I went to. And that one, the, that particular pheno smelled exactly like butterscotch to me. I don't know if I brought this up yet or not, but it's the only, the only like cannabis I've ever smelled that had that. It was straight butterscotch. I mean, it, it smelled just like that. So it wasn't really potent smell like hit you in the face. It was a little bit more muted, just like butterscotch is. But I was, it was, it was awesome to be able to smell butterscotch on a strain i've never smelled that before that's pretty neat i think i remember you maybe mentioning this before you may have mentioned it in the chat like our little panel between us messaging but i don't know if you said that on a live show or not either way it's cool that's pretty rare i couldn't tell you what that terpene is it's not one of the top 10 and it might be a mix of them and i would suspect that it's probably a, a ketone ester aldehyde or flavonoid minor cannabinoid something else in there that might not show up on a terpene test or your typical profile. But if you know it with your nose and you like it, that's the, uh, the money right there. And Michigan oh, medicated grew it. However they grew it, it made that plant express whatever, uh, you know, they had. Yeah, she Hopefully did a great can, job. She did a super good job on that. I, I really, really like it. And she grows other strains too. So it's not like, you know, how did she, she how did like she obtain that? that you know? I don't remember. I, I know she had the seeds. Either she got, I know she got them from you because I remember either she ordered them or what, I don't know, but I know she had like the, those awesome boxes and packaging that you have. Cause uh, she'd put posts on Instagram. I've, I've been following. That's awesome. Man. I, I gotta be honest. Like, I mean, we've all grown mad. Well, whatever, regardless of whatever else. Doing, but like, so out of anything I've grown, like that plant itself. And I still have the mother and luckily, uh, you know, I got it tested from that guy in Cali, uh, the nursery that's going to start distributing it down there. It passed all virus tests. I mean, like all in all, man, like that, that plant itself is just like phenomenal, man. Like just between the children and the smoke and the, you know, the terpenes profile, like they swing a little bit, but it's not too dramatic. It'd be like a little bit of sour or like, kind of like, I mean, I haven't gotten butterscotch yet, but that's, that's pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, just overall, like everyone's just had really good, uh, good things to say about that plant. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited for, I mean, it's going to be going down in Cali soon. Maybe it'll go uh, other places from there, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's nice to hear that. Cause even down here in mass, I was at the, uh, there's a grocery store nearby. 
And some guy was just like, oh, you're, you know, you're Kyle Breeder. I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I got an uncle's brother's cousin that's growing rock candy. And it's just like, it's just so cool how it kind of just gets passed around. So it must be doing well, you know, people to enjoy it and be passing it around. So it makes me happy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If it sticks around, you know, it's good, dude, because everybody wants to keep growing it. It's good. So oh, stone, that was the, the the stone pause. The stone pause. Yeah, no, that I, is just I, I, thought I, I agree about the new candy. When everyone reloads, supposed to reload in in you don't have this problem. So yeah. let's talk about the EC that we were talking about in our chat because I think it's an interesting thing that everybody can learn from EC and soils. It's pretty surprising to me, honestly. If I didn't know who you were, Brandon, I would be very, very skeptical that Likewise. we're just pulling the wool over our eyes. But guys, I'll step you. away for one minute to fill up my water bottle. Yeah. Hey, can I, can I and then it gets silent that? for a minute straight, and I'm like, God damn it. I got a question about EC that Brandon, uh, that Brandon might have an answer to that. I'm yeah, kind of yeah. curious. Bring it up. All right. So Brandon, uh, when it comes to like, so let's say I were to pour water through uh, basic pro mix, you know, and the reading is obviously like a, a like almost zero EC because it doesn't have much in there. And obviously you can regulate uh, whether it's synthetic salt feedings and through there. And that's how people monitor their EC through runoffs and stuff like that. So when it comes to super soils, I was checking the EC on that and it was like off of a, uh, basically what's in my so basically my super soil pots ran out of food i started liquid feeding to just basically get it through what it needs to and i was i was having some kind of issues on one of the plants so i checked the ec on it and it was like over it was like i have a, the truncheon from blue lab and it was like it, it pinged out at 3.6 which is max i was like okay well that's probably a problem so then i was like well let me check this out first so i took a fresh pot with fresh m3 ran pure water through that just to see what that would come out as maybe to kind of base or regulate between the two things that are going on. And even the pure M3 pinged out, maxed out at 3.6. So it, what I'm wondering is how can you gauge, like why is that, why is that reading so high in super soil? Like what's the, what's the science behind that? Well, here's the thing. Uh, your ECE is your um, cationic exchange capacity in soil. It's going to be um, I get mine actually tested at a laboratory, um, and you can see. Let me, oh man, I I don't have the papers with. I like me. that you said the full laboratory, not just lab. Made it sound super fancy. Yeah, it is a kind of a fancy lab. Um, you don't use uh, Logan Labs, right? You use a different I, one. No, I use Logan Labs. Oh yeah, that's what I use. They're great. Yeah, so I, what I do is I get a soil and saturated paste. Um, it's the only way to see how soil falls into solution. And what that is, is because water is basically, you know, a universal solvent, um, the hydrogen that is, you know, you know, part of that molecular structure is able to be used in such a way that it can help other minerals and nutrients bind so what happens is they'll test to see 
uh, they test the soil and say all of the, they check all the calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, nitrogen, blah, 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 right? And then you can actually see a readout of what is actually available when you just water with plain water. And if you see that like things are really low in solution, you can go reference those numbers on the soil test and then increase them. And then you're going to like, for me right now, what I'm doing is I'm gathering data to make bases off, to make base data off of where those levels need to be and where um, I can use water and just my inoculations uh, to, you know, increase my uh, quality and production based off of science on like what the plant is using. So what I'm currently doing is I'm doing bi-weekly tests. Um, and what I do is I get the, I get recommendations um, from Bryant, who's soil doctor at, on Instagram. And we work together to basically create a comprehensive data pack. So that way, that's what I'm going to be building my SOPs off of, of what are these, um, what are these plants requiring throughout the different phases of growth? That way we know what minerals need to be top dressed in beforehand, you know, like the langbanite and the you know, the soy meals and the mineral, the gypsum, and the, you know, and, and just every, all that stuff. Um, so when I've tested my EC, um, my meter goes, I can test PPMs on, I have a meter that goes really, really high. I think up to like 10.5. And I also have, and it's multifunctional. So on a seven scale PPM, I've seen really healthy plants just pumping away at like all the way up to like seven eight nine thousand parts per million um and it's not a good indication really for uh the health of the plant um and also the you can kind of get gauge ph that way um by if you take a let's say 6.3 ph and you run it through your soil you can see how that changes and you can kind of do an estimation um but again i can just know what it is because i get the testing done um so there's no guesswork um and that's kind of like the best way but yeah i don't think the ec readings uh or the parts per million readings uh, are going to be a really viable solution to judge if you have uh, too much. Um, it could be an indication of bicarbonate and sodium in your soil, which could be a problem because uh, high sodium and bicarbonates will actually start affecting all. That's that's when you run into problems in soil. You have those two are too high because they have uh, high interactions with all the other nutrients and minerals in the soil. We'll start locking things out. Things will become unavailable. So those things, if those are too high, you have to um, concentrate on flushing. But then what happens is when you flush, a lot of the, the things that are anions, they get leached out in soil. So like sulfur, iron is a heavy metal. It's not an anion, but it's a heavy metal. Heavy metals get leached out really easy. Uh, sulfur, silica, I think. Uh, Calcium. Yeah, no, calcium is a, a cation. Um, but it's a heavy, heavy metal, metal that's going to have an electrical conductivity oh. in that runoff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it can get leached out too. So one of the keys for like the organic side is you don't, if you, if you get too high of a salt concentration, 
um, you have to rinse, but then you have to resupplement after you do that, you know, like top dress. And then next time you water, make sure you're not running to, to, uh, rent, uh, to run off. Thank you so much, Brandon, for answering. I just want to give the American one a chance to go ahead and introduce himself because he got here a little bit late, but uh, we always appreciate you, bud. Welcome. Uh, thanks, Jack. Yeah, I'm the American one on uh, YouTube and the American one with eight teams on Instagram, and uh, I'm glad I made it. We're glad to have you. We talked a little bit about what everyone was smoking on earlier, so you could go ahead and tell us what you're smoking on if you are indulging right now with us, and uh, then Brandon was kind of explaining to Kyle why EC might be pretty high in something like an M3 or a super soil mix in general. Uh, right. what are you I'm, about, on, I'm about to hit actually i did a i did some uh, a bubble hash run a couple of days ago no about a week and a half ago now and yeah i'm starting to taste some of that uh i did i just did a 73 a 45 and a, a 120 i did once and then like a 190 catch and after the i did it with the 120 once that stuff wasn't very um the 120 bag wasn't very good. So I just used that as a catch and just, I, I made it easy. I just caught the 73 and the 45 to use, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, it's good. So maybe I'm understanding it wrong, but doesn't EC, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this in very general terms, but isn't EC kind of like using a thermometer just to, you know, like using air temperature to figure out what your water temperature is. It's like, it's not really helpful in soil, EC, an EC meter or a PPM meter. Let me jump in on one thing here. There's two different things that I think we're talking about. I think Brandon's talking about the electrical conductivity of the soil. And I think that... Oh, I see. I was confused. Okay. Kyle's original question was, it seemed at least that Kyle was thinking about it in terms of the electrical conductivity of the water that's moving through the media, um, not the electrical conductivity of the media itself. And maybe Brandon could clarify that a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. Just real quick, so, so I find I find it weird that two EC in soilless media, let's say ProMix, is like a strong dose. You want to kind of regulate it like maxed out. If you look at charts and such, I find it weird that in super soil you can be up to. It's totally okay, three. but yeah, you're picking up dissolved salts in the media though, um, and you really need to to sort of manage electrical conductivity differently in a mix like um, in a fortified soil mix like that. So. It, the the runoff numbers are not going to give you really an accurate reading about the the electrical conductivity of the soil itself. So when Brandon sends his soil off to a lab, they're they're testing the electrical conductivity of the the, the media. They're not testing the electrical conductivity right. of the water that passes through the media. They they do the electrical conductivity on the saturated paste when they actually run. The that's, the that's correct. The they run distilled water, and then there's that's a different EC, right? It comes right. out at a different D, they do different they, D depending on what how that soil falls into solution. You guys, Coot's in the chat right now. Should we can we invite him in? Is that possible? I think it would be a lot of fun to because he just jumped on the chat. Can you send him the link uh, on to his uh, Instagram? I'll shoot him a DM. Okay, so. What's going to happen is when things fall into solution, what you actually want is you kind of want a balance of anions and, and cations because that is going to uh, drastically improve uh, the availability of everything across the board to be bioavailable uh, if they're balanced, right? You don't want things to be able to, you know, block, block things out. Also in organics, iron is 
ex- is, is extremely hard to get um, unless you're at running soil at a super low, low pH, which you're probably not. Um, and so having the, uh, not only is the way that soil falls into solution affects, you know, those minerals that become available when they're come in contact with the roots, but also you have to remember um, the thing that you can't um, really gauge off of those tests is the nutrient cycling capacity of that soil, right? Because some of the way things fall into solution aren't going to necessarily, they're going to be, um, they're going to be from biological means and not necessarily chemical reactions, like the chemical reaction uh, that the water is having on the soil, right? And all the molecules that are in the soil, this is going to be a different type of acquisition that the plant is utilizing for the uptake of those minerals and nutrients. And you guys already know a lot of those. We're talking about the endonectomycorrhizal fungi. We're talking about the azobacter that promote, you know, uh, nitrogen fixation. We're talking about, you know, probiotic probiotics, like the bacillus spe- uh, family of bacteria that produce all types of beneficial secondary me- metabolites. I know that the Saccharomyces family has some really, really interesting secondary metabolites. And all of these things are you, you take into consideration. So what I'm doing is I'm building data sets off of the way uh, water is falling through solution in soil. So that way I know what I need for my for my uh, uh, for the maximum fertility in the soil. But I also have things like the earthworms and composting mites and the beneficial predators. And I'm using the, you know, the probiotic bacteria that's creating like mycelium mats. So all those different things play a role in, in the soil health as well. So um, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how some of the things that I use will cause changes in the way that the uh, the that the soil forms into solution. And one of that is going to be able, hopefully I'll be able to take my, you know, uh, the, like the micro plus, which I use as an inoculation, um, take some water that actually has the microbes in there pre-mix and have them water with that solution because the pH is lower with the microbe concentration because of uh, the lactic acid and the other organic acids that they're producing. And those organic acids will actually have more effect because uh, they'll be able to change the chemical composition faster over just having the water. So that's one of the things that we're going to be looking into as well is how is how are things falling into solution when we're using the inoculations? My like real basic understanding of the whole situation though is is like in hydroponics we're feeding plant available nutrition everything's already plant available so the ec helps us a lot because whatever we're measuring in there that's all plant available when you're measuring when you're measuring ec in a soil system that might not even be plant available that you're seeing so it's really not a number that we can use to tell us a lot it's a general number that can give us a general idea what's there but it doesn't really tell us anything it doesn't tell you much about nutrition even in a hydroponic yeah. setup i mean it, it affects um well, it tells you the level of salts in the water at least it tells you the level <laughs> of salts in the water but it does affect water uptake by plants in any media the the gross electrical conductivity affects the salinity of the water which, which affects the osmosis across the roots so it, it does still make a difference what's up coot we just got a uh, clackamas coot joining us jim how you doing good how you doing? Hey, guys, introduce doing? yourself 
We're doing yeah, well. We're I'm, talking. Uh, I'm the guy that annoys uh, nutrient companies, companies and uh, especially soil companies. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I saw Spartan on and uh, so we had chatted the other night on another venue. That was an awesome talk to you. I really appreciate the information, man. Oh yeah, you're welcome. I, I and I saw that you saw a uh, a plant that I helped someone with. This is their absolute very first time ever growing anything in a container. Uh, you know, like I think it was massive. Looked yeah, beautiful. you know, it's, uh, why not? You know, I mean, they'll probably get a. I don't know. I, I hate estimating. I'm always wrong. So, but they'll get a lot of medicine. That's the important thing. So we were, we were talking a little bit about EC and uh, high EC coming out of the runoff in a super soil type mix up. Um, mm. I haven't personally taken an EC runoff meeting uh, reading because for me, I'm like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If the soil is working and the plant's happy, I tend to not worry. I just keep on giving it more water when the plant needs it. But as far as uh, high EC runoff readings, do you have any thoughts on that? None. I've never... Uh... I've never owned or used a pH meter in uh, 40 some years. Um, my focus is always about creating the best soil and the microbiology will take care of it. It really doesn't need human interference. Uh, you know, it takes me almost a year and a half to create some amount of worm castings. First, the thermophilic cycle mesophilic cycle, let it age eight, nine months. Then we put it through the worm bins. And, you know, the whole thing is you have to have patience. And if there's one thing I've learned about cannabis growers, that's the one attribute they lack the most is patience. So when you want instant results, you have to go for uh, other answers other than science. Uh, you know, I mean, some of the stuff, that well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but no, I've never, uh, I wouldn't, you know, at my age, I'm not going to lift a, you know, 200 gallon pot to see if, what the pH is. I just, you know, not going to happen <laughs> ever. What is meant by like answers other than science? Well, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, everything whatever it might be has, you have to have a story to set you apart. You know, there has to be, oh no, because in this plant we have to do this. And so you off on doing, uh, you know, you know, for like, somebody please, God, please explain to me what a magnesium hungry plant means. Since chlorophyll Jim, I think what I think what you're trying to say is basically that, you know, uh, sometimes science lags behind or 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 rather is inspired by this sort of abstract thought about soil. And I, oh, I can yeah. vouch for that just yeah. in this this enzymatic stuff that I've been researching, like how how <clears throat> how like. Um, you know how plant how plants synthesize compounds and how 
you know, nutrient cycling is interesting because it's like, it's basic understanding is like, you know, it comes from the sky, it goes down into the earth and it goes back up into the sky, sort of, right? Basically. Sure. Um, but, you know, compound synthesis is just as interesting because it's like on a micro scale of that. It goes from the soil into the roots, into the stalk, into the bud, and then back out into the atmosphere or, or uh, phytosphere and then back into the rhizosphere. You know, it's like this really cool cycle, closed loop. Can I just like uh, jump in on a little bit of the advocate of the science side? Because I've grown in uh, the coots mix, not with your worm castings or anything, but it was really successful for me and I've loved it. I've recommended it to new growers and they've had tons of success when they were struggling with other methods. So thank you for putting it out there. But if I remember correctly, you said you were sort of inspired by the Cornell mix and Cornell is a university who I would imagine put some amount of science into the research to finding that, that mix that was successful for a number of crops. And well, he grows uh, tomatoes and other things in it with a lot of success. So I'm curious what your thoughts on like their oh, foundational okay. sciences. Sure. Well, the Cornell mix came about at a symposium and I could be off a year, but 1938 rings a bell. So over 80 years ago, and it was to establish protocols in this horticulture sector that was growing. People were buying homes and, you know, the whole curb appeal thing. And uh, depending where you live, you could, you know, have, have a nice lawn or whatever, a nice flower bed. So I'll give you one example. Have you ever noticed that a number one pot doesn't hold one gallon? I'm, I'm talking about soil. Well, there's a good reason for that because on that symposium, it was established that a shovel full of soil would be the amount that would go into a number one. And two of those would go into, and so you get the idea. So by the time you get up to five or six, yeah, it's a mess. Uh, I mean, there's really hardly any cor uh, correlation. But the Cornell mix was, and this is before perlite. Remember, it, it hadn't been invented yet, or the process hadn't been developed to create what we That's call perlite. And, um, but the soil mix, and you can look it up. I mean, I didn't. I'm not that bright, you know, uh, go look at the recipe. I mean, I tweaked it. Nobody in their right mind's going to spend, you know, almost, you know, what, two years making worm castings. So, um, but anyway, the, the, the structure, the, the aeration, the, the flow, went, and then other science came along to add to that, like the work of the not-for-profit or, uh, international organization, Remineralize the Earth and a good discussion on why we want to use paramagnetic uh, rock dust, which is only two, bas basalt and um, granite, versus the usual, which is aluminous silicates. You know, the, anything that ends in ITE, bentonite, zeolite, azomite, those are all, there isn't a dime's worth of difference between any of them. Uh, what do you think about vermiculite? Oh yeah, well, I'm really embarrassed because I, I was uh, wanting to grow some mushrooms and a standard mix, and I don't know who invented it and I don't really care, but it's equal amounts of core, which I would never use in a soil. And the other one is vermiculite, which I would never use. 
So I had to go to my supply store, which is a farm store. And I put it on the cart and the gentleman he's known me for years, he goes, oh, you're switching teams? And I said, hey, listen, I know where you work. You didn't see this, okay? I don't want anybody knowing that I hauled these two materials out of this building and might think that I was using for a soil mix. You know, there's enough bad soil out there you will find that easy enough. You know? but anyway, yeah, vermiculite, I don't, that whole thing, you know, when, you know, following the history of it, which predates my, I think, aren't we back in like the 50s, the cancer scare? on that particular material out of a particular mine in Utah, or am I thinking of something else? I personally don't know. Uh, I, I had it first, first time I experienced it, I was growing wheatgrass for my cats to eat and yeah, for right. myself to juice. And it sure. sprouts seeds really easily. And it's yes. also found in some soil mixes like the M3 mix, which uh, is popular among some people in the cannabis growing community, it's sort of marketed uh -huh. towards them. And it retains water well, et cetera. And it, it's, I think, an affordable part of a mix that helps make, like you said, soil companies probably more profitable because it's a, a filler that they can well, use. Well, it is a good, uh, but It also has the ability to break down with some silica over time, right? Right. And, and the other thing is that it is a good, if you want to stabilize the hydration level in your, in, in the case of mushroom substrate, or in the case of uh, horticulture, your soil, potting soil, yeah, I can see using it. Um, that doesn't mean going into Walmart because they got it on sale because it came from a mine out of, you know, someplace that I've never heard of. Uh, yeah, I'd probably be cautious. I'd probably want to stick to uh, domestic suppliers. And so that there's some kind of standardization about work standards, you know, you know, all the things. It's a material that you have to be careful with. Uh, I got to give Swan credit. Uh, M3 Swan, Swan Swanson, the guy who makes M3 Mix, he has all of his material tested for heavy metals at very right. uh, scru like, uh, scrutiny levels. And um, he sources like Canadians, Magnum Peat, which I know you're a fan of personally, right? Yes. As far as the peat base for yes. part of their mix. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because now that I think about it, the vermiculite that I did buy from this organic farm supply uh, stated on there that it was approved for organic food production. So obviously that mine or operation had been tested. And so this material you could safely use. Um, the only reason I don't like perlite is the damn stuff moves around. I mean, you know, when you're going say you're running a nursery and you're going plants that are going to be in the field for three, four, five years. Well, by the, because you need the root mass or whatever your contract is to grow these, this particular plant this size, right? For landscape architects and that kind of thing. And so by the time the fourth year, there's no more perlite left. It moved to the top, got blown away by the wind, the rain, the, you know. So that's why I advocate hummus. And, but the complaint from the industry is, yeah, but it's heavier. And so when you're paying to move your plants to your customer across the country, uh, you know, weight's a consideration. And, and it is in the potting soil too. So I, you use a mixture, I use a mixture of pumice and uh, rice holes. I like the rice holes because they break down re really slowly. 
but they also add another component for the for the biological aspect and they uh and they release silica over time i you know what i didn't mention it because not some not everyone has a good source but that's a real uh common thing for me to do is mix rice hulls organic rice hulls for lumber from lumber farms in california with the pumice and for the same reason i also add it to my worm bins uh to create aeration there and the same thing by the time they deconstruct i kind of know that the worm castings are done so they're kind of like a an indicator like a, a, prog a progress indicator yeah absolutely it was yeah. like a pot it's like one of those pop-up things that comes on your turkey and let you know yeah, there you go. <laughs> so it, but it is good and the, i think it's a wonderful uh i've grown mushrooms and uh straight uh, rice holes because we're, if you were in Asia and you were growing mushrooms, I doubt that you would bring in vermiculite from, you know, Arkansas or something. <laughs> You'd probably use what's local and that would be rice holes. You'd probably have a lot of it just thinking it through. So, Back to the pumice, though, I remember you saying one time uh, you came from, uh, you were working in a nursery for trees one time, and the pumice came in clutch to when the pots were dry, it would keep the pots standing up, and they wouldn't tip over on you. I thought that was awesome. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, one of the big uh, losses in the nursery is what we call knockovers, meaning the wind knocked the tree over. And so to the degree that you can lessen that, you know, keeps your profit levels up. Um, then it became this joke on cannabis boards. Oh, yeah, they do that for aeration at the bottom of the container, really? <laughs> Have you thought this through? You know, has nothing to do with... Uh, yeah, it sounds good. But you know, while I have you here, um, I'm the one who asked you on, I think it's your most recent future cannabis project appearance about uh saponins and their effect on on insects and aaron actually uh, sent me over the two papers about uh, about them and i was i was summing through them specifically the one called uh novel advances with plant saponins as natural insecticides to control pests you had said that it works like a chitinase but i don't think i found anything quite like that can you explain? If I, if I did, I misspoke and I apologize. The chitinase is completely different. That's the, an enzyme that's created by bacteria in a feeble attempt to deconstruct this polysaccharide. And so an enzyme is created called uh, chitinase. And that's how the product you may, uh, there's a uh, gardening, indoor gardening product called Kytosan. Well, it's the same science. Uh, chitin is exposed to bacteria and this enzyme that's created chitinase is collected what it does is deconstruct the eggshell of insects preventing them from developing and uh, you know hatching the saponins is a completely different thing that's really dealing with the uh, ecoskeleton and those agents uh, deconstruct that it'd be like having your skin ripped off right the cuticle of insects and other arthropods is made out of chitin primarily 
but what I was going to ask you was that um, this, the, you know, I don't think you totally misspoke, actually. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up since you were here. Uh, because it seemed like, and I'm just quoting from the paper here for other people who are interested, because it was really cool to read this. Um, so it says here that uh, it basically it allows for things, it, it gets into the, uh, it can pass through, it's permeable. It can, perme it can go through the, um, the cuticle of the integument of, of arthropods, but it doesn't actually dissolve it away like a chitinase does, which is a subtle but important difference. And that can still be really, really problematic for a bunch of different reasons. So I just appreciate that Aaron uh, was able to get those papers from you. And I appreciate that he was able to make that connection. Oh, you're very welcome. I, one other thing I wanted to add, there is a book available that I discussed uh, before called The Neem Tree. And it's available at Amazon for about $35. And it ships from a book dealer in London. This man spent 35 years uh, from 1958 to 1983 studying the neem tree. And he, he arrived at his first job as a PhD. Uh, uh, I think of a damn science. A bug guy. Uh, Entomologist. Thank you. Jeez. Smoke another one, Jim. Anyway, uh, so we have this very uh, academic person. You don't get through Cologne University in Germany. It's not like your local uh, community college, right? I would sure hope not. And so anyway, this book is, it's overwhelming. It's not a book you sit down and read. It's a reference book, but it covers every, well, not every, um, every uh, compound that's, that has been identified, cataloged, and tested. The nimbin, serenin, the various, there's like 65 forms of azadiractin. Um, but if a person really, really, really wanted to understand me, this is the book. It's used in upper division classes in Pakistan, India, and elsewhere uh, as a textbook. So, um, yeah, 35 bucks. At, uh, I got mine in 10 days. I thought it was pretty good coming all the way from London. Going back a little bit to the saponins, uh, I know a lot of people like to use, um, gosh, what is it, in their watering container and they're just shaking soap nuts. Soap, yeah, soap nuts. And Absolutely. If, if that has Think the ability to do like what you were saying with, uh, it's not maybe dissolving the exoskeleton, but allowing it to penetrate with inside the insect, I think that would be much more effective for whatever other yeah. thing that you're adding into your IPM spray. Blueberry, Abbasiana, maybe its opponents act as a natural surfactant. It's also one of the yes. in the aloe vera. Um, right. So also, if you use those type of things, if your soil goes hydrophobic, it can help rehydrate um, the soil too. So it's just one of those things that, uh, that is, is, it has a lot of benefits, you know. It also, right. if, if I remember correctly, I think they also help aggregate soil particles too. Correct. What's interesting to me in the, in the nursery trade, if we spray it on a plant, we call it a surfactant. 
on the biomass. If we apply it to the soil, now it's a wetting agent. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, for law reasons. Terminology is essentially the same thing. And I think that when you use oh, yeah. like biocontrols oh, yeah. like the entomopathogenic fungi, um, they definitely are more effective because somebody, you know, it's weird. I heard someone uh, describe it as it uh, surfactants, you know, like saponins, they make water wetter. Right. Yeah, there you go. That's really a good definition. And and one, yeah, for the, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's actually using... really fun. If you use a, a wetting agent in your water, you can notice the difference in how the water is wetter. Um, I mix nudes up in a five-gallon bucket, and after I add a wetting agent, when you pick water up and then dump it back into the water, it won't splash as much. It just sort of right. like enters the water again. Um, <laughs> kind of like how, like how droplets, like when you make droplets like move together and they become one big droplets, like that is enhanced almost. I, I well, think. it's actually broken. Yeah. So that the yeah, force that's the, 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 it, it, it decreases what doing the surface is tension the surface of the water tension. is what's happening. The surface tension of that water actually, right. I think it becomes. Uh, is it less or is it more? Less, I think. Yeah, yeah it lowers the surface tension. And, yeah, and that means that stuff can just like enter the water without <laughs> splashing. The water will be able to, to sort of better get things wet because it doesn't bind with itself. Like a droplet of water sort of binds with itself and gathers up. If you have wetting agent in that water, it won't bind up. It'll just spread out, right? So you won't get the water drop. <laughs> if you uh, use, want to use soap nuts, and you buy the ones that, that are basically semi-whole, the, the seed's been removed. But those shells, are their levels are 250,000 parts per million. That's 25%. And so after you use them, you can dry them out. You got to dry them out completely. But you can use them five or six times and just don't ever aerate them. Or it'll look like one of those comedy shows where the person got involved with the washing machine and went crazy. I mean, your whole house will be filled with foam. Um, yeah. Just let it sit. Don't aerate it. Yeah. yeah. So what I've been doing, and, and you tell me if I'm doing things wrong, I have a little spray bottle. I fill it with water. I've got, looks like two shells in there. I shake it before I spray. I spray it, and when it gets empty, I just fill it back up. I don't fucking dry them out. I just leave them in there. And I, the reason I shake it is better than me. Is it working? Yeah, yeah, it works. Works fine. Oh, sounds and good to me. I, I, all I do, the reason I shake it is to make sure I still got bubbles. When I don't have bubbles yeah. in it, I just yeah. put more, more in. Yeah. I, I was, um, I was interested. I was uh, amazed to find out. So I have a sensitivity to solanine in tomatoes and potatoes, and I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast already. But apparently, solanine is also a saponin too. Uh, it's in the same chemical class. Are there other saponins that um, you guys can think of or that anyone is aware of? I don't know personally that chemical class very well. Like, Maybe Aaron? I don't know if it's in the same group, but I know yuck is used for wetting agent in some sometimes. I was about to bring that up, and Potentonic Steve will tell you if you're running, uh, I believe that, that that's the one in aquaponics, it will kill off all your fish, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah, so. Yuck. That's one that you won't want to use. And you know, they used to, people People used to use poisons to fish with, actually. That used to be much more common. Native Americans, they used to use a yucca plant. They would, like, dig up a bunch of it, concentrate it, and then they'd put it in the river. And then at the end of the river, all the fish would be dead, and they'd just collect them in a net. 
Pretty so. smart. Pretty smart. It is super interesting, but Probably you definitely wouldn't want that if you do aquaponics. Jim, have you ever uh, tried aquaponics yourself? Do you mess around with that at all? Uh-oh, I think we might have just lost him. <laughs> As a... The Purple Thumb OG was asking in chat more about soap nuts. He said he's got powdered soap nuts. I haven't seen that product before, and he was wondering how to use it, like what application rate. I have no clue. Does anybody have any idea on a powdered soap nut like application rate? I would just probably put it in a, in a bottle, put a little bit at a time. and A pinch. Pinch. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think dosing is really that, that critical on wetting agents like that. So as long as you're not overwhelming them. Um, if you put too much wetting agent, if you're fertigating, it can sort of prevent the plant from uptaking a lot of the nutrition. In fact, a lot of flushing agents are, are really wet in that regard. Um, but yeah, doses is not like particularly sensitive. I think my lights are about, oh yeah, they're on. I was about to say, Brandon, it looks like you're on a little journey over there. Do you want to talk us through? I'm going to spotlight your video so we can see you uh, full screen. I did that earlier, Spartan. I didn't let you know, but when you were showing your nug that you had oh, just no. trimmed up, I uh, spotlight your video for the good people out there in the chat. Did you see my frustrated face because it wouldn't focus on it? <laughs> I, saw, I saw that. I saw your face and your weed. So um, this is a bunch of old San Diego uh, genetics, uh, some P91 bull riders, super silver haze cross, some purple kush crosses, some blueberry train wreck crosses. Put your hand by that fan leaf again. It looks like it was bigger than your hand. Yeah, that's some good sized fan leaves. Yeah, I love the aesthetic okay. of large leaves like that. I actually trimmed off all the big ones because I'll show you guys what I did. Is I, you can see down here, I, I've been t I tested out. So I found out about uh, an amino acid fertilizer, and it's a it's a product of corn milling, and it's called corn steep, and it's uh, a lot of amino acids, but it has a complete NPK, and it's completely organic. It has you know some small amount of micronutrients as well, um, and so what I ended up doing was I came down here and I top dressed some, and then I watered in, and I overdid it. So I burned the crap out of my leaves, um, but everything came back just fine. I just used water next, you know, a couple waterings, and you can see there's no burning or anything on the new on the new leaf sets. And they're about, um, I, I think they're about like 13 days into flowering, so they're. Come, you that looks proper, man. I, I remember back in the day when we used to try and burn plants. Like, you, you see tips, like, you know, when we were running advanced, you know, you'd see tips start to burn and you go, okay, dial back, dial back. Like, you know, so I don't think it's really that big of a deal when you burn your plants like that. Yeah. I want you can also... see there's, there's oh, ahead, some uh, Bokashi down in there. You can see the mycelium and you can see those proper. fungus gnats that I was talking about. In there I think somewhere. fungus gnats are easy to deal with most of the time. If you just let it dry out a little more and get a little more airflow over the top of the medium, that takes care of them. Uh, in my you know, case, a lot of the time, it's it's not super super bad. There's just a couple here and there, but I also have you know some rogue beetles and some some little hypoaspis. I guess they changed the name, so now I have to figure out. I have to radio little lamps or something. <laughs> Brandon, I want to share. Yeah, I don't bother. Uh, <laughs> we know what you mean. Most people will get it. 
that wanted to that. share a mistake I had in the garden um, recently because Brandon just showed everybody, even if you're a professional cultivator, we all make mistakes here and there. So I think it's best to share them to show the newer growers that, hey, even if you have a mistake, the plants can bounce back, look super healthy. And yeah, uh, I mean, you can have a ton of success in your garden. Don't freak out. Day 13. This is a super silver haze cross right here. And uh, it's going it, to, dude, this, all of this, all of these, they'll fill out really, really big. So maybe next like week gonna stack hard. For sure. It's early in flower. I think they're looking great. My mistake was uh, not a growing related one, but I collected and stored some pollen uh, for breeding. And I actually wanted to share some of it with a grower in the community. And as I went to package it up, I never fully sealed the container because I didn't want it to, uh, when it is freshly collected, there's some moisture in there. So I keep the lid a little cracked. So I did that for like, you're supposed to do it for like a week or something, let it dry out. I didn't let it dry out. Uh, well, I, I let it dry out too much basically and just left the container open and I had it wrapped in like a paper towel. But what ended up happening is ant season came in California and that ended up being the breeding ground in my house and the cause of most of my ant issues because unbeknownst to me, those sugar ants love to uh, feed on cannabis cannabis pollen and not only that they were literally breeding i'd never seen so many tiny little ants in a little glass pyrex dish so unfortunately i had to uh give them a soak in hot water and then spray i have a home thing that i found on farmer's almanac it's a ant spray it's vodka or you can use like alcohol rubbing alcohol and then uh a lighter <laughs> lighter but Water with alcohol, uh, vodka, like 40% is fine. And then uh, peppermint oil and cinnamon oil. And you just shake that up with hot water. I put a little drop of like Dr. Bronner's soap just to make it uh, a better like wetting agent like we we're talking about, surfactant, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so that tends to kill the ants literally on the spot when you spray them if they get hit by it. And water alone does not because I've like run water over them and the ant will just keep on walking and like scurry out. So I don't cinnamon, just straight cinnamon on my anthills out. So if I get anthills, usually in my garage, for some reason, these damn ants want to build their home in my garage, you know, and they'll come up between the, you know, where the two cement slabs meet that little crack and they'll start building anthills. I just dump straight cinnamon. I'll go to the store and get whatever's the cheapest cinnamon, the biggest one, and just straight cinnamon on their anthills and it usually takes them out. They certainly seem to hate the uh, cinnamon oil and, uh, having it in a little water bottle to spray around your house. You can spray it on like the perimeters. It's pretty safe. I, I would say for like, I have pets, I have cats. So I wouldn't want to spray something more uh, aggressive. They do make some like ant traps that I've had some good success with where it's like a bait trap where they eat the poison. They bring it back to the uh, queen or the swarm nest area. I had to battle, kill battle all ants on my plants that were farming aphids, which is a whole thing. Dude, I, I built the, I made these traps out of like one gallon uh, water bottles and I cut a little hole, like what you would picture like a tiny mouse hole. It was like this big in the top. So it was like the jug with the lid on it with a tiny hole. So the ants, I put it in their pathway and the ants would, um, I, I did two traps. So I did a dry one, which is like, a, it looks like brown crystals in there and it's borax and uh, just a little bit of water. And then I did a wet one, which they die the crystals they take back to the you know the mound whatever and uh the liquid they die in so you can kind of see the action happening and know that it's working and it's just like a thin brown or it's actually very thick uh liquid that sits at the bottom of that water bottle so you have two traps there and you'll get i had like thousands and thousands of ants in this trap 
before I was finally able to like get rid of the ants and then the aphids at the same time. Thank you to Matt for a lot of that, by the way. You're very welcome. And, you know, I like, uh, I think I'll also add the Bavari Bastiana technique for those who can get a hold of it, you know, mix some, I mean, different ants feed on different things. So sometimes they're not going to be as attracted to like sugar and stuff as others, but typically I like to take some um, sugar, mix it up with some Bavari Bastiana spores and they'll, they'll feed on it. They'll take it back to their nest and, you know, hopefully you have a, a, well, a problem <laughs> that I occurs. Forgot to, I forgot to say sugar is in that. It's borax, water, and sugar. So yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I don't remember what a good the bait. picture ratio is. I wanted to share, I actually have told the story in the past on the podcast that when I do have these ant problems, I don't think that they're farming aphids. They hardly ever go after my cannabis plants. I rarely, rarely see them on there, but occasionally they do creep in and uh, I got a picture of one. I'll try and show it on my phone. I'll, I'll post this on my story. But the ant crawled onto the plant and got stuck in the trichomes and died. So the natural defense mechanisms won out on that one. Because I like couldn't see what it was. I literally had to microscope it. That's like a shot through a 40X loop or something. <laughs> Not the best option. But um, it's interesting that, yeah, the plant just naturally took care of it. And uh, sometimes that's the approach. I just trimmed that part of the leaf off and it was good to go. Oftentimes when I see pictures like that, I'm reminded, and I won't go on a huge diatribe about this, but I'm reminded about how carnivory evolved in a lot of plants and how basically pre-carnivorous plants, oftentimes they would have really sticky trichomes and, and also very nutrient poor soils that they existed in. And so what would happen is that insects will land on the leaves, they will die because they get glued to the trichomes if they're already quite sticky, or if the plant kind of makes like water, like, like, or not makes water, sorry, what I mean is if the leaves are kind of curved like bromeliads are, where you can have like water kind of sit in them for a long time. Anyways, so it always makes me think like, you know, what's in store for plants like in, in the future? And how can we kind of use that to our advantage in an IPM way? But like over time, those leaves, they get curved, they get more sticky. Um, the plants basically foliar feed, um, because the nutrients get into the plant through the foliage. And that's how like pitcher plants and Venus flytraps and sundews all developed. It's crazy stuff. So we can eventually have cannabis that eats its own bugs? No, it's really the microbes. The microbes are eating the bugs, just like in the soil. Well, well no, but in carnivorous plants, they, the, the, the plants are directly oh, like feeding on the carcasses yeah. of the bugs. Yeah, like, can we, uh, can we graft a sundew uh, branch onto my cannabis plant and have it uh, to fertilize? <laughs> I wish you could plant the sundews in with the cannabis, but they don't, because of their evolution, they don't do good in like nutrient rich yeah. uh, soils anymore. Um, right. because, well, that's yeah. partly, they get the nutrition from the sky, not from the earth. Now, now that's the case yeah yeah i just posted that photo to my story on at jack greenstock on instagram for anybody who wants to see because i know it was not coming through well on the uh, webcam but it is All interesting right, I'll be back in a couple minutes <laughs> but when uh you go to um do a co-planting like that you sent me a podcast matthew of i think it was um suzanne wait suzanne wainwright suzanne wainwright evans evans okay uh the bug lady i think as she's also known and in her podcast, she was talking a little bit about how to implement, uh, it was with Shango Los, uh, Shaping Fire, I believe, a recent one a few weeks ago. 
they were talking about using companion plants and he was like really kind of like hard pressed and like wanting to do it. And then she kind of had a lot of uh, warnings, I guess, and, and better ways or best, best practices to implement. And she talked about wanting like how Brandon has in the past planting them in their own pot. So they get watered when they need it, but you can have them alongside. And she even mentioned how some people have them like on the side of a greenhouse. And then when there's a issue, they'll bring the banker plant that has the um, predator over to the spot of the greenhouse and set it down next to the plant that has the most issue. I've actually implemented a similar sort of technique myself, and I, I know many other people have too. There's an advantage to that, certainly. Um, you can also like sort of move them to apply a treatment to them if you wanted to do that and sort of sequester them elsewhere um, or quarantine them or do something like that as well. But, you know, it depends on your sort of situation, certainly. Dude, I don't there, think are, there are so many problems with, with, you know, uh, planting other plants with your cannabis plants. And there's great benefits, but it's, it just adds such a diverse complexity. I know, you know, a lot of people use cover crops, which can, you know, increase like, you know, the nutrient cycling in your soil and stuff like that. But then some of those same cover crops can attract bugs that will also attack your cannabis plants. So this stuff gets really like intricate and, you know, it's hard to just give one answer or something like that. The way, yeah, ain't that the truth. Um, but for me, I've always kind of felt like, like the, the, the plants, the, the banker plants or whatever other like extra plants that you're using for some sort of reason like they're not they're not going to like attract like attract is kind I know I know you might not have meant it this way but like if the if those bugs if those generalists like aphids or whatever or leafhoppers or something spider mites especially if they're in the area like you know (laughs) they're gonna go onto whatever plants are close by that could be the cannabis plant or it could be the banker plant that's like you know in the same pot and so like as long as you're scouting and treating the same it should be pretty similar well in my experience it just you know you can create environments that are more suitable and and i don't know what energies happen in the universe but you know i think there's things that that maybe happen where you know in a in on like a pheromone kind of level or or something like that on this chemical kind of level where uh, maybe we can't detect it, but but you know certain plants can draw in certain things. Um, Especially that said, I guess I guess really what I meant was um, you know it, it, I kind of got sidetracked onto cover crops, but really what I'm what we were talking about is is banker plants, and banker plants have all these problems, and one of them being knowing the difference between a banker plant and like a uh, what do they call those? Like an attractor plant or something? Oh, like a kind trap of. crop, kind of. Yeah, trap, trap plant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like and a firebomb plant. Yeah, those are my favorite. So, <laughs> you know, you got to be careful. I'll, I'll just. I agree with that, though. That's actually. A, oh, sorry, Jack. No, no, you're fine. I was just going to say more on the um, side of not planting within the same pot. I think because it's effective if you plant them in separate pots and it still works. I like the flexibility of having the whatever it is, peppers. Uh, if you're like hosting Swirsky Eye, for example. I think that one is nice to have the flexibility of moving it around if you do see an infestation. Like you could have them maybe within all of your rows just generally and then pull them out, like you said, for IPM and stuff and put them back in when they're needed. And if there's an infestation, move it to that territory that's most But dude, you're taking care of a whole nother plant. Like why not just 
get the get sachets. It. Well, I mean, you got to plant it. You got to you got to make sure that you know part of IPM is pruning leaves and stuff like that. Make sure that plant doesn't get bugs. But um, aside from all of that, you know, uh, shit, I forgot what I was gonna say. God. I've just seen it done successfully at Brandon's garden. I walked his his grow and I saw the plants and it looked no, beautiful. People it worked kill it. Great. No, because but it's, but it's not easy. I know people can do it. You I just want to say how to people. But... It's cheap home grow. The cheapest way is not to buy sachets over and over and over. It's to buy once. No, but the sachets can last five weeks, man. I mean, these things actually we work. And yeah, we do it at work all the time. That long. It's well, possible. Okay, so look at. I did the experiment after Matthew had told me about it, and I just went and bought peppers from Home Depot, like a cheap home grow would do it, just to see if it was a viable solution. And I actually physically recorded with my dino light the Swarovski guy feeding on the pollen like three and a, three or three and a half months after the initial inoculation, and I only inoculated. Fair one. enough. Fair enough. So it's like buy and reapply, or go the sustainable route if you can put a little bit more. Uh, labor, which is what, what it really comes down to. You're watering, you're planting that plant, you're taking care of it. And like you said, you might have to prune if it starts to get unhealthy. Maybe it doesn't like the lighting conditions. Like you, you do have to sustain it and keep it alive. So, and since we're talking about peppers, you can you can harvest the capsaicin and use that as a as a you know a spray. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. wear protective equipment when you spray that. I was gonna say, watch your eyes. With the pepper with the pepper experiment is you want a pepper that is gonna continue to produce those peppers uh, you know that, that's why i used an ornamental pepper that was just more of a decorative pepper just because they're not producing peppers for food these things have been cultivated to just look pretty and create tons and tons of peppers a pepper a species that's just going to continually drop pollen let me ask you this you specifically what? want pepper plants that are ornamental because of the flowers. They produce a lot of flowers and they stay flowers for a long time, which means that they produce pollen for a longer period of time. Um, in the research report, just for anyone who's curious, and I do have a video on my Xenthanol YouTube channel, um, they use exploding ember. They experimented with three different ones, but exploding ember was the most um, effective by, by quite a wide margin. So... But uh, in the past, you know, purple flash peppers have been useful for certain things. And I don't think you can go wrong too much with it. But Aaron, you know, you make a you make a great point, And I don't want you to feel invalidated. I hope you don't. Because it is true. Like, some people it works better for and other people it doesn't. A big thing for banker plants, I just want to say outright, is that sometimes people uh, are growing in locations where it's very hard to facilitate natural biocontrol agents there might not be a whole lot like my buddies up in the high desert like <laughs> i mean there's a lot of insects and you especially see them at night but like it's not the same as i don't know the panhandle of florida or you know um you know for that matter northern california or the pacific northwest so, or the beautiful conditions of our grow rooms or, or that well or that. so let me ask you guys this do you need you need a substantial amount of banker plants if you have a substantial amount of farmland right or i guess it depends is, it is the farmland getting hit with the midocloprid every week right i'm coming more from a horticulture than an agriculture perspective personally i think we're like most of us are home growers we're trying to grow for the best quality and craft and at scale right. at field growing like, can have good quality and it's also implementable but i think like that smart, on the smaller scale it makes more sense smart growing would say 
they just buy the sachets. I mean, I think if you're getting hit in this in a relatively large area, you just buy the sachets and put them in that area and do the bank of plants as well. But like, well, and they also have a good I mean, relationship let's face it, dude. As, as home growers, aren't aren't we like spending so much money on on like crazy shit like like the newest LED and like I was a home grower too once and like I spent every dime on on the newest thing. Banker plants are cool, but like sachets are a guaranteed release. So it's a release and a mini banker plant. So yes, you you're 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 not having this release for months and months and months and months, but you're guaranteeing a swath of destruction when you put those on your plant. And one more important it's, it's aspect. Yeah. It's like a baker plant you can hang on the plant you want them on. That's a huge distinction too. That's true. Space is, is at a is at a premium usually in a grow room. And if you're gonna dedicate space to a banker plant, it's gotta be close to the plants. And it's still gonna have to, you know, those bugs are gonna have to travel epic distances. You know, hopefully the wind will get them, but uh, it's gonna be hard to get them on your plants with a sachet, you're hanging it right on your plant and, and they're releasing right on your plant. That's what I like about I, I I agree with that a lot. Actually, is is I mean you can do both. The other thing that says you can't do both as well. And in fact, I tend to like people if they're going to use the pepper plant system, that they inoculate their banker plants um, with sachets because you get the best of both worlds as a hybrid. And then hopefully that kind of continues on and continues on. But you're right. You do have to manage. You have to manage the plants that you're using. Uh, to benefit your crop. And so in some cases, I think that is uh, worth it. And in a lot of cases, it might not be. It just really depends on your context, right? I mean, <laughs> you can say that about anything, though, I suppose. I think Jack was about to bring up a really good point, too, is that we have a great relationship with our um, our insectary. You know, Matt, Michigan Matt, shout out to him. He, he lives right near there. So on his way to work, he can stop in there every week and get our weekly supply and it's super fresh it's not getting sent in the mail and um, we're getting them super cheap in my eyes because i can't get them at that price at the home home grower level that's for sure i mean we're averaging about 50 cents per sachet i mean every home grower would be all over it if we yeah i mean let me tell you this um i mean like not for nothing i was just working with some people and um there are some groups there's some biocontrol groups that like if you use their products exclusively, you get a huge price reduction, but you know, it has to be at a certain scale where it makes sense for them uh, from an industri industrial perspective. Well, I think that's and, making sense business relationship wise. Sorry, go ahead, Aaron. Oh, that's okay. Um, it, <clears throat> it doesn't hurt to order more. A lot of times, you know, I mean, it's kind of a silly thought, but you know, I think, okay, so I order my, my beneficials from I just switched to uh, beneficial insectary. Their retail website is greenmethods.com, I think. And um, I mean, I can order a hundred sachets and for 50 plants, that's perfect. Cause you, you know, I put one near the top, like sub top canopy and one basically above where my water is going to be going when I'm watering the plant. Because again, these sachets are sort of sensitive. They can't get too wet for too long. Really, you're not supposed to raise the humidity above 50 or 60 percent, or they have the potential to evacuate or perish. So, there are some complexities, as as with any system of IPM, but it's worth investigating. How big is your space? Because that's pretty overkill. But I mean that I mean that in the best possible way. That's how you do it. Um, but uh, so I have a. 400 square foot flowering area and right now this is right now in in california um and a like 
300 square foot uh, veg area. I will do you. Yeah, good, I will good job, you dude. Apply the <laughs> Sorry. Um, I apply the sachets once a month, but yeah. but um, this year, so that's the sachets I do once a month. But I do other bugs like just when I'm right. bored. And, just right, and those sachets are um, cucumbers, or what are they? Uh, Swarovskis. Their cucumbers are the ones that I use for the sachets. I've had the best. It just depends on your environment. I think they do sell yeah. Swarovski eye sachets as well, but you said you're naturally glorious, right? Those are Say ridiculously again. priced. Sorry. No, that's and I'm paying like I, I think Spartan. I'm, dude, I think I'm paying fifty or sixty cents with. No, not including shipping. That's shipping. Is right, extra, not but, including shipping. Yeah, I, that's what I've been using every once in a while. And but if you think about it, the time and effort you put in, uh, you're going to do sprays and stuff like that. I just, I'm a total believer because when I first encountered spider mites, I tried all of that stuff. Now there's new shit that I maybe should be, you know, should be trying. But if you get the, um, if you do it on a monthly basis, you're going to be tight. The spider mites ain't never going to come, ain't never going to be there. And then, you like know? I said, when I'm bored, dude, I will go on the website and, and this stuff is not that expensive for, for like home growers. You know, you can spend 40 or 50 bucks a month. And have a really tight bio like living biological control of your of your pest management program. And like, dude, and so like yesterday I ordered, you know, aureus insidiosis because I saw some in the garden. Not because I have bug problems, but because I saw them flourishing. And I'm like, dude, it must be time for the aureus. This Boom, is order this them. is how you do it. Anyone who's listening, this is how you do it. Pay attention to the things in your environment. Good job, Aaron. Well, yeah, I really, well, I learned from the best, bro. You're, you know, you're the man. I really had a great um, flyer or material that came one time. I ordered from Nature's Good Guys. I believe it was an Amazon thing, and in that was some paperwork, and it was talking about mites specifically. And uh, I actually have it hanging on my wall right here in front of me. Why I have that is because it broke down a lot of the predatory mites. Let me see. There's six of them on there. And it tells exactly what you're talking about. It tells like the environmental conditions that they thrive at, the ranges, the temperature ranges, the humidity ranges. So if I have a problem, you know, or I'm, I'm looking to order them, I just match it up to my grow room conditions and get the one that'll, that'll work out in it. A lot of people don't think about that. They hear us talk on here about, hey, Cucumaris works good for me. And somebody else says, Swar you know, Swarovski, I works good for Californicus. me. Yeah, Californicus. Dude, is really good. An I'm ounce curious. of research I'm, goes a long way. Oh, it certainly does. I'm curious, Spartan, you said, do you have that uh, in front of you right now? Or? I do. Yes. So can you go over, like, the difference between Swarovski and Cucumaris real quickly, if you have that? Sure. Yeah, so the... For as far as the ranges, the the Cucumaris is it says the temperature ranges is a lot wider. It's a 43 to 90 degree Fahrenheit, whereas the Swarovski guy, guy likes a 50 to 90, so they like it a little bit warmer. They they can't tolerate the colder temperatures. So if you're outdoors, especially, that's going to be a huge thing because it still gets cold at night. And then uh, humidities, this is where they stand out, and this is the biggest thing to me is that like the humidity ranges are way different for each one. So the Swarovski guy is 40 to 90 percent which to me, that seems awesome. That's going to cover pretty much every grow room condition. Whereas the Cucumaris likes it a little bit more humid, 65 to 75%. Yeah. That's pretty tight. Yeah. I love that they have that flyer for you. That's big ups on them. Um, I want to explain very quickly why that's important uh, with the humidity. So there's two big reasons. The first one is that 
mites are extremely, extremely small. Um, they breathe through their skin to a degree. So there's just direct, um, what's the word? Osmosis. Like there's no, there's there no is, it's basically like osmosis, right? They're just breathing through their skin in that way. Um, uh, so that it oxygenates their sort of blood in that way. Um, so that, so like the ability of diffusion, thank you. So, uh, oxygen has to diffuse through the skin and the humidity is a big part of that. If it's too dry, then they dry out and they die. Um, their eggs are also very sensitive to sort of the microclimate. So if you can keep the humidity up, then their eggs won't desiccate and their reproductive ability is going to be better. And if you give them a bunch of pollen, I have a video on my YouTube channel that goes over it. Um, and I think it is the banker, the pepper banker plant um, video. And I think it was cucumerous. I think so anyways. And they were showing that like on a pure pollen diet, they're like three times as reproductive. It was like, it went from like five uh, females per female. No, is that right? I'll have to look at the chart again, but it was like triple. It was like triple the amount of uh, reproduction of, of females specifically, which is important because you need those to make more eggs. So, you know, I'm going to give it over to Spartan there. Grown real quick because he's going to have to get going over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show and then we'll uh, let Matthew finish up his thoughts and then we'll do our final sign off. For sure. Yeah. If you get, I mean, that's worth an order from the nature or was it nature's good guys just for that, that piece of information. So it, it goes into far more detail than that too. Those are just highlights on each one. And then it has a description of each one. It tells you their life cycle, how long they live. It tells you how many um, eggs they can, you know, how fast they reproduce. Great information. I immediately hung it right above my computer. So I've got all <laughs> Um, but hey, it was a great episode, guys. I loved it. It was sweet to see Coot just jump in. I loved Seriously. it. Seriously. Um, uh, what Dude, a great you episode. Gotta, you just got to grab Surprise him guy. while he's hot, man. <laughs> yeah. Good he for was you, in the chair. Aaron. Good he for you. I'm so happy I got to talk with him. Sorry, I won't Bogart anymore. <laughs> Me too. No, I'm, right, I'm excited starting. for next week. Super excited for next week, Steven. Uh, Reisner, I love fucking talking to that guy, too. So super excited. And uh, hey, I'll catch you guys next week. And I'll be on the Michigan Bros Grow Show in about five minutes <laughs> well thanks Later, again for Russell. joining us uh spartan we always appreciate you make sure you leave a like for spartan grown joining us and also for coot and also for yes, uh potent ponics next week because uh i know that everybody's really going to be looking forward to that and i really enjoyed coot's time with us so thank you to jim clackamas coot uh, for joining us that was really awesome uh, happy we had an opportunity to get to talk to him i'm sorry i was bogarting a little bit there because i was like what do you think about this that and i love to hear his very raw thoughts on things because he goes back all the way to the 30s or whatever you know and starts bringing up where it originated and i like those types of conversations uh noah the grower do you want to go ahead and give your sign off i saw that you unmuted over there do you have a comment you wanted to make no that's cool i was just gonna say peace out to spartan there for sure for sure with that said we're actually at 555 here on the west coast uh shout out to everybody in the live chat baked pone is actually the one who reminded me to tell everyone to like the show it helps uh get us through that algorithm and helps uh keep florida panhandle represent he'll know what i mean <laughs> shout out shout out to the panhandle i've uh, spent some time in florida it's an interesting place i'll leave it at that but uh with right that... here baby right here oh yeah <laughs> i'm such a fucking nerd for that and it's on my hat whatever represent florida you got to represent where you're from i guess uh, with that said aaron do you want to give your final shout outs and let people know where they can find you Sure. You can, <coughs> excuse me. You can find me at ATG Acres on Instagram, and that is it. I am Aaron the Grower. 
thank you. I had a lot of fun. This was a fucking blast, dude. Like this was one of the, I think this is the most fun episode. There's something in the air. Me and Matt had a really good episode when we went a couple weeks ago and this was a lot of fun. We're killing it guys. Way to go. I'm uh, happy that you're enjoying putting out the content because I'm enjoying listening to it even uh, when I'm not involved. So thank you for putting that content out and thank you for joining us and getting us that coot connection because uh, I don't think if, uh, if you weren't here, I don't know if he would have uh, come on and I'm glad we were able to shoot him the DM with the link and he showed up. So. I- Thanks I'm not going to lie. I shot him a text and I said, check your DM. It's from Jack Greenstock. Let's do this. So, Awesome, man. Well, I really, really do greatly appreciate that. I want to pass it over to uh, Brandon over there. You're scrolling through. Uh, I'll let you give your final shout out. What's going on? Yeah, great episode. Always enjoy talking with all the rest of the members. Um, if uh, you're not already familiar, you can find my Instagram account at russ.brandon. And you find links to both my company and the company that I uh, cultivate for. Good stuff. Shout out to Lucky. Hashtag Rainbow Chicken. The uh, parrot over there. You hear him talking a little bit throughout the show. The Beautiful parrot? Day. The macaw. Macaw. Sorry. He, he talks, so I thought he was a parrot. I, I'm messing <laughs> up. I'm not a bird expert, very clearly. Uh, I'll admit my uh, shortcomings. Did you hear him say hi? <laughs> I have heard him talk before. That's why I was like... Uh, I associate that all with parrots for some reason. But that being said, uh, I'm going to pass it over next to Dr. MJ. Sorry, uh, you didn't have too much time to talk tonight, but uh, we always appreciate you showing up and giving your uh, input and feedback on the conversation. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I'll get in there. I got in there a few times, but yeah, let you guys chat about your, your soil mixes and issues and your uh, IPM stuff. All of that stuff was fun. Um, I'm Dr. MJ Coco from Coco for Cannabis. I have a big video dropping this week on grow light physics. I get into uh, the grow light physics of running in different coverage areas and the benefits that you get when you run two fixtures in an array. Um, really interesting stuff, I think. Um, huge amount of work. It's certainly my best effort at a video and it's dropping this week. So everybody, I hope checks that out. Um, I also got a cool, I got a Photon Tech uh, X600 Watt Pro, the new Photon Tech fixture. This is a sister company of Lumatech, um, which is a great lighting company from Europe, um, out in my living room right now. And I'm going to be testing that this week. So I'm really excited about that. And make sure that um, you come and join us for the Plant Training Grow Challenge, which is uh, starting soon. Where flip date is October 1st. So you can start whenever you want to in order to flip on October 1st. Um, we're going to have a ton of prizes, a ton of sort of cool little side competitions and challenges and stuff going on with that, uh, including the party cup challenge. So um, check that out. I'll post a link in chat and uh, grow our love to everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, those lights, I think, are very interesting. The Lumatech have really good scores on uh, MyGrow's uh, efficiency testing. And I've also, uh, interestingly, that you're talking about arrays and running lights in arrays, because I believe that is the name that he's gone and elected to use for his next lighting project because he's switching from cobs over to the strip style led lighting so yeah i plan to test that fixture pretty soon too um yeah you know this is with my my video basically focuses on um the sp3000s from mars i got two of them um so i was playing around with different testing areas and um, running two of them and it's really interesting, for example, like do, testing one in a two by four space and then testing two in a four by four space and, and realizing sort of how much you gain in that process. So I, I get into the physics of why you gain more 
I do an absolutely brutal sort of side-by-side uh, -side comparison with the two SB3000s and a 600-watt HPS, too. It's fun stuff. I, I enjoyed it. But yeah, arrays are definitely the way to go. And I think this video hopefully will, will sort of play well into uh, these next couple of fixtures because the, the Photon Tech is a big array. You'll notice all the big sort of top-end lights these days are coming out with bar array-style designs. It seems to be very effective spreading out the light, lots of points of light, and I look forward to that information and those videos, so thanks again for joining us. Next, I'm going to pass it over to Noah the Groa. Thanks again. Yeah, I didn't talk a whole lot. I was just kind of listening, but uh, I was happy to be here and uh, hang out with all you guys. And uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Groa from Instagram. If you got any questions or just want to check out what I got going on, feel free to stop by and uh, happy growing. Thanks so much for joining us, and I know uh, there's a lot of people on these panels some some weeks, and especially when there's a guest, um, I know that not everybody gets a chance to jump in, so I'll try to do a better job in the future of uh, looping you in as much as I can, and everybody else who uh, maybe doesn't get a chance to speak as much, like Kyle over there at Predicative Breeding. Uh, do you want to give your final shout-out? Yeah, yeah, it was really uh, really enjoyable to listen. I mean, obviously, I have uh, my shortcomings as well, and um, you know, hearing some of that stuff definitely benefits me for sure. Um, yeah, if anybody wants to look at any stuff that I'm working on, uh, I have some new stuff coming, some new material, which I'm pretty excited about. Some uh, Black Leaf Afghani, some Pink Kush that I have that got gifted to me, and I tried to reach out to whoever it was that handed it to me because I lost the paper, but uh, if you're listening, uh, reach out, please. But yeah, uh, Predicated Breeding on all social media platforms. If you're looking for Feminized Seeds, pbreeding.com. I have some good material, and I'm um, looking forward to next week, Jack. Thanks for hosting. Thanks for coming. And uh, we always appreciate it. I'm glad that we got to talk a little bit about your genetics and some of the people that are growing them and the uh, different expressions. I love that. I'm a nerd for anything uh, cannabis strain, chemovar, cultivar related. I love hearing about the different expressions. And when it's a breeder that we know and have on the panel, I'd love to hear people having uh, success with it. So thanks again for joining us and putting out good work to the community that people are enjoying. Uh, Kyle, really appreciate that. And the American one. Hey, Jack. Everybody on panel, this is a good one. It's always good when we just go on the fly and talk about whatever comes up. Uh, a shout out to chat. They're always good. I wish I could be in there more when I'm on panel, but I feel like I say, keep going back and forth. And uh, I just want to reiterate on uh, for uh, Dr. MJ Coco, I, I checked out, I rewatched his um, Mars Hydro SP3000 field test and review. And for anyone interested in lighting and how you want to measure your lights and a lot of aspects concerning that. That particular video, he goes through how they test the lights, like, because it's the first test. So, yeah, I can't wait to see the next one, uh, Dr. MJ, because I'm always a believer in more points of light and the overlap has to be just so beneficial. So I'm interested in seeing that one. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's awesome, it. Shout out to Shane. And, uh, yeah, peace out, all. Hours of work vindicated. I enjoyed He's it. gonna like this new video though. If he likes the last one, that that uh, was only sort of a, a brief taste of what I'm up to at this point. Oh, I love to hear that. That's how Matthew was talking when he talked about his IPM Part Two video, which I took a long time to finish, but I finally have finished it and have rewatched it and really have extracted so much more information than I ever would have imagined. But when he talked about 100 plus references, I guess I'm not really surprised that I learned a lot and really enjoyed it. Uh, speaking of which, Matthew, I don't think I've given you the opportunity to give your sign off yet. No, you've not. And I really enjoyed this, uh, this session. It was really great. Uh, shout out to Aaron for having the connection to get clacking this on. And also the interaction that allowed me to talk about saponins with him because um, 
I thought it was a really interesting point. And although it wasn't quite, the fact that he even mentioned it allowed me to learn something, even if it wasn't quite what he was saying or whatever, but I really liked it and I learned something even more interesting. So um, shout out to that interaction. I love that we had these connections. Um, chat was active. If you want to find out more about IPM, Integrated Pest Management, you can go to my Twitter, at Zenthanol or at Sync Angel, Instagram, at Sync Angel, or YouTube channel, Zenthanol, the same YouTube channel that I was commenting in in the chat. And with that, I'll say, uh, until next time. Thanks again for joining us. I got to say, I really enjoyed the uh, video that you just recently released about the equipment that you bring in the field with you. And uh, definitely check out his YouTube channel and all the other social media if you haven't already started following him. Uh, he's a great resource for the community. And thanks again, Matthew, for joining us and sharing all the wealth of knowledge that you've acquired over your years in the field. So thanks. Sith Lord IPM, apparently. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that leaves just me. I'm at Jack Greenstock on Instagram and Cannabuzz at Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. I'm not really working too actively on the podcast because I'm working more actively on an audio book, which will be called 50 Strains of Green. It's going to be the first one. I'm highlighting 50 different strains of cannabis, their origins, how they grow, the different chemotype, things that make them special, and my personal experiences with them. I've got about like five or six left, so I'm chugging along about like 80 plus pages in. It'll be a little over 100 pages and available in ebook as well as a paperback. So that should be done around uh, the holiday season because I got to do formatting and all that other good stuff. But that's why I'm not doing too much of my own podcast right now. And uh, really do love stepping in and being able to host uh, each week because I learn a lot from everybody on the panel and uh, I really appreciate everybody's feedback, especially the people in the chat. Thank you all for showing up. Thank you to Shane from the Cheap Home Grow who makes this all happen for us. Thank you to Coot again. Uh, that was really awesome having a special guest this week and shout out to Potent Ponics Steve next week. Really look forward to talking to you and thanks everybody. Have a great night. It's Jack Greenstock signing out. We love everyone. Uh